Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, again, it could be morning, it could be afternoon, it could be 2 a.m. Um, but I appreciate you, uh, again, continue to tune in to our Historical Theology Lectures. Uh, this is lecture number 13, right, 13. And uh, this time, we're going to be looking at early church father Hilary of Poitiers, or Poitiers, I, I, <laughs> I assumed he was French. It just sounds right. Hilary of Poitiers, but uh, I'm not sure. But this one will also, uh, like the last two, it'll be a two-part lecture. A lot to say about Hilary. Um, definitely kind of an unknown, not unknown, but he could have been more well-known as, as I think as you see, we go through some of his, his writings and his, and his theological articulation. He was definitely really a, um, a momentous figure. Very, very uh, rigorous in his thought. Very logical. Um, articulated a really coherent and cogent doctrine of God um, that really, again, it kind of was a, a major stepping stone in our progression as we developed the doctrine of the Trinity. So we shall get into it. So, yeah, Hillary. Okay. As always, the all the church fathers, as you've probably noticed up to this point, they all look about the same. So, um, as I said to one of my uh, viewers out there who responded um, about not having a picture of a previous um, church father, I said, once you've seen them, you've seen one, you've seen them all. So, anyways, let's get started. So, so Hillary was Bishop of Poitiers in, oh, that's right, he was France, so I had it right. Yeah, in Poitiers, Poitiers, in West Central France. He was the leading Orthodox Latin church father during the peak of the Arian power. He was one of the greatest of the Western church fathers, but unfortunately, he is probably one of the least studied. His work, uh, De Trinitate, or On the Trinity, is a response to Arianism and also Sabellianism, right? and it's a meticulously, meticulously profound piece of theology, constructed with great passion and enthusiasm for the clear teaching of the faith, about the triune God. So, so why then is he not well known nor well received from others, as others are? For one, he was a Westerner, so his Latin tongue couldn't permeate the Eastern Church walls. His work on the Trinity seemed more of a detailed and lengthy response to an epistle from an Arian, which soon deteriorated and was forgotten about. But his writing style and form of argumentation is challenging to follow and use and use for instruction. That was that's why I think a lot of modern people do struggle reading the early church fathers. Is there's a lot to wade through. It's not always systematic. Um, it's very thorough, very long sentences, and and kind of maybe the construction of, of the phrases can be kind of clunky and abstract. Um, so that is always the challenge of reading uh, many of the early church fathers. But Furthermore, Hillary's work was soon overshadowed by a later masterful work on the Trinity from none other than St. Augustine. Hillary, though an original thinker, was not a great systematician, or did he order his thoughts in a clear and organized manner? Augustine came out, I want to say, around 50 years, possibly, after his work with the Trinity, maybe a little bit later. Um, obviously, if you're familiar with that work, and we'll be going through it, um, that is probably the defining work uh, in the Western 
Western Church as far as how we understand the doctrine of the Trinity. And lastly, Hillary has gone down in infamy as the Orthodox theologian who claimed that Jesus did not feel pain, though he suffered unto death. And because of such views, those to follow found it hard to look to Hillary as a bulwark of sound theology when he affirmed ideas that evacuated the faith of Christ, our redemption, and even Christ himself. While Hillary lacks a following even today, his De Trinitate has much to offer. He has some great penetrating insights whereby he tackles a subject exhaustively, leaving the reader depleted of mental acuity. At times I found myself asking Hillary to leave it alone already. He just does not know when to stop kicking a dead horse. So Mike's exposition of his theology comes directly from his De Trinitate, though he has other writings. The goal is to outline his doctrine of God, noting the classical strand of thought representative of his work. Uh, De Trinitate is divided into 12 books, almost 200 pages in the um, NPNF edition, which that edition, if you have it in print, averages around 900 words a page, so very small, fine print. So whereas modern books are around 250 words a page. So in today's standards, this, this work would be about 720 pages. All that to say, it is a hefty tome. My aim is to provide the contours of Hillary's doctrine of God with an eye to the classical expressions of God showing the continuity of thought within the, the Christian tradition. And then I'll conclude my exposition. This will be in part two of his views on Jesus' painlessness, which ultimately is his departure from the continuity of the Christian tradition. So Hillary opens his work by expressing his intentions in refuting Arian and Sabellian heretics. And we will see in his writing a strong emphasis on the understanding that the son's birth, his generation from the father, guarantees a sharing of essence, yet a real distinction within the Godhead. But these teachers, these Arian and Sibelian heretics, they have degraded our Holy Savior, Son, and God by declaring him the greatest of all creatures, specifically in Arianism, or state that there are no instantiations or modes within the being of God, in that the designations of Son, Lord, and Savior are mere names of the same God which we find in Sibelianism, or the modern, the modern term for that would be modalism. But therefore... Both, therefore, deny the triune God. Through revelation of the scriptures, God has demonstrated that he is the blessed trinity. And it is through the scriptures that Hillary will assert the veracity of this truth in which he lambasts, isn't that a great word, lambasts, his opponents for not taking scripture at its very word. If God says he has a son, then he has a son. We need, to, we need to then discern the mystery of God, who is one yet three. Hillary reminiscently reflects on his thoughts of God in the early stages of his coming to behold the God of the Hebrew Scriptures. He affirmed a, a philosopher's God, of which he writes, Omnipotence and eternity are the possession of the one only. For omnipotence is incapable of degrees of strength or weakness, 
in eternity of priority or succession. In God, we must worship absolute eternity and absolute power, end quote. And you will see that is the very first slide that we have of Hillary. He then chanced upon Hebrew books written by Moses and the prophets, where he came face to face with God the Creator, the given testimony of the I am who is. Hillary writes that nothing is more unattainable to our understanding, yet so characteristic of the mysterious divine nature than his existence. The divine nature can neither be originated or destroyed. God communicates of himself in Holy Scripture that he has no beginning or end. Thus he is eternal and holds the heavens and the earth in the palm of his hand, as we read in Isaiah 66. Heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. And Hillary says God declares these things in metaphors, not as one who sits, but rather as one who has extension in space, in which his throne and footstool are also held in the hand and palm of, quote, infinite omnipotence. God's presence is revealed in such a manner to manifest to every born and created thing. Oh, sorry guys, I blew it on. There we go, okay. He says here, quote, God might be known within and without, overshadowing and indwelling, surrounding all and interfused through all. In this wise does God, from within and from without, control and correspond to the universe. Being infinite, he is present in all things. In him who is infinite, all are included. God's boundless infinity, as observed in Psalm 139, 7-10, means that there is no place or space in which God does not exist, and nothing exists apart from him, he, quote, embraces and is embraced by the universe, confined to no part of it but pervading all, end quote. Now, Hillary recalls his soul trembling as God unveiled himself to him in beholding him first as God the Father, learning about his eternal and infinite beauty, which we come to know God as creator by the things he has made. God is God and there are no others yet further revealing of the nature of God was that of grace and truth, who was with God in the beginning and who is also God. God revealed his divine gift to the world. Trini uh, um, not Trinity, it's right in the Trinity. Hillary writes, quote, God the Word became flesh, in that through his incarnation our flesh might attain to union with God the Word, end quote. The divine mysteries, Hillary writes, Hillary writes, are gladly welcomed by my soul. Hmm. I missed a slide here. Okay. All right, regroup. Um, the mighty workings of God were measured by boundless faith, not by his own powers of perception. Hillary says he refused to disbelieve because his soul could not understand that God was in the beginning with God. Now his confession, though not as elegant, reminds us of similar quotes, one from Augustine, who writes, For understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore, do not seek to understand in order to believe, but believe that you may understand. And then Anselm's motto, he says, For I do not seek to understand that I may believe, but I believe in order to understand. For this I believe that unless I believed, 
I should not understand. So what do you think he's saying here? Let's go back to what Hillary had said. He says he refused to disbelieve because his soul could not understand that God was in the beginning with God. So he's making a point to say that he is refusing to not believe this because it is so beyond him. Right? It's, that's what he's saying. It's so contrary to rational belief to think that God was in the beginning that therefore he refused to disbelieve, right? And so I think we, we see the similar, similar sentiments in Augustine and Anselm. And we can think about it in Hebrews 1. It says, by faith you believe that creation came from nothing, right? came from the word of God. Is that what it says? I think it does. Somebody correct me. But anyways. So for Hillary, his belief was strong because his understanding was not. But God is beyond, beyond our comprehension, God became man, the immortal died, the eternal was buried. These cannot be grasped through reason, and therefore we must not venture beyond what Scripture reveals, which is what the heretics attempt to do. Heretics question not so much of what is given in Scripture, but rather how it can be what it says. They want to gauge the divine mysteries for themselves, and they want to give priority to analogies from nature and anthropomorphic statements in Scripture, giving them control over their interpretation of it. And we've talked about that, that heresy comes in the form of taking the creaturely language and imposing it on our divine um, ascriptions, divine characteristics. By taking that, we're bringing God down to us. The language was intended really for us to understand something of who which is incomprehensible. So to those who want to hinder God's glorious self-revelation in Scripture, Hillary writes, For he is the best student who does not read his thoughts into the book, but lets it reveal its own, who draws from it its sense, and does not import his own into it, nor force upon its words a meaning which he had determined was the right one before he opened its pages. Since then we are to discourse discourse of the things of God, let us assume that God has full knowledge of himself and bow with humble reverence to his words. For he whom we can only know through his own utterances is the fitting witness concerning himself. It's a great passage. Really great passage. So Hillary understands the weakness of our minds. So employing nature Nature metaphors to explain spiritual concepts are helpful, but we cannot confine ourselves to them. They all fall apart at some point, and that is a theme we see Hillary mention throughout the rest of his treatise. Now in book two, Hillary begins by stating the baptismal command of Matthew twenty eight nineteen as the summary of the faith where Christ commands us to baptize in the name, emphasize the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the heretics mangle Christ's words. They question the meaning of the divine utterance and then dogmatically assert some arbitrary interpretation, which Hillier writes, then forces us to deal with unlawful matters, to scale perilous heights, to speak unutterable words, to trespass on forbidden ground. This passage, as simple as it is spoken, heretics easily pervert. Hillier writes, Heresy lies in the sense assigned, not in the word written. The guilt is that of the expositor, not of the text. Is not truth indestructible? When we hear the name Father, is not sonship involved in that name? 
The Holy Ghost is mentioned by name, must he not exist? We can no more separate fatherhood from the Father, or sonship from the Son, than we can deny the existence in the Holy Ghost of what gift which we receive. End quote. So, in having to respond to the treasonous actions of the heretic, Hillary notes, we are forced to move beyond Scripture. And while language is exhausted in speaking of the ineffable, nevertheless, God has given us accurate terms to describe himself, and it is dangerous to think that we can be more precise. Hillary says it fills him with anxiety to consider tearing up perfection, making laws for omnipotence and limiting infinity. Next, Hillary considers the ineffable, beginning with the divine, simple nature of God. Now, again, as I've mentioned, divine simplicity is a common theme that I've intended on highlighting as I work through the early church fathers. Ultimately, Lord willing, uh, the book to come out of all of this is kind of going to really focus on that piece and, and show that that strand is as, what's his name, Richard Muller says, as, is normative in the early church of the Christian tradition. And it is, all the way up. It's only now, in the modern context, that we now give a crook eye to divine simplicity. So divine simplicity, as we've observed throughout our study, is the normative position in contemplating on the divine essence. One must begin there in order to establish a cogent, a cogent excuse me, and consistent view of God. Now, obviously the biblical text does not say God is simple. It says what God is one. But we also know God is three. And so we have to conceptualize, as the church has done, is to conceptualize that God's oneness is not violated, but yet we recognize his threeness all in here back into the oneness. So ultimately, divine simplicity solves that dilemma in saying that God is simple, he has no parts. And, I, and obviously, as we've been going through this, we've been talking through the intricacies of divine simplicity. Um, so I just want to make sure that I'm not saying that you, we start with scripture, obviously, but then there's a conceptual framework that we formulate from the biblical text, which we ultimately ground, surround, and is governed by the text. So, okay. Now, this is up for debate in that some later writers begin with the triunity of God rather than the oneness of God. Now, now let me correct and say that there are writers that do that, though they do not deny divine simplicity. I should have I should have noted that here, but um, but however, there are those that are modern critics that say we do not we do not need simplicity at all, and that's definitely a doctrine that doesn't really have any bearing on our on our Catholicity when it comes to our scriptural understanding of of, of God. Now I'm not going to talk about that here. Um, I have to get that much later on. That's not my point. Uh, maybe I'll discuss it much later as we get to the contemporary uh, understanding of simplicity. But. That's a long way to go. All right. Um, Hillary's expression of the simple essence is accompanied by negative terms, with a great sense of awe of the of the limitness, sorry, limitlessness of God, which is what the heretics defile in their perverted doctrines. He writes, "This is a long one. It is the Father to whom all existence owes its origin. In Christ and through Christ, He is the source of all." In contrast to all else, he is self-existent. He does not draw his being from without, but possesses it from himself and in himself. He is infinite, for nothing contains him, and he contains all things. He is eternally unconditioned by space, for he is illimitable, 
eternally anterior to time, for time is his creation. Let imagination range to what you may suppose is God's utmost limit, and you will find him present there. Strain as you will, there is always a further horizon towards which to strain. Infinity is his property, just as the power of making such effort is yours. Words will fail you, but his being will not be circumscribed. Or again, turn back the pages of history and you will find him ever present, should numbers fail to express the antiquity to which you have penetrated, yet God's eternity is not diminished. End quote. And I can rest my jaw. So Hillary's apophatic statements of glory bring us to the edge of a great chasm that we cannot cross. But because the son who reveals God has complete knowledge of him, Hillary admonishes us to, quote, let our thoughts of the father be at one with the thoughts of the son, in that he is the faithful witness to or of the ineffable creator. To know God, we got to go to Christ. Sorry, we go to Christ. That sounds kind of weird. We got to go. We got to go to Christ. But that is true, right? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus says to Philip. So Hillary's use of apophatic theology is a clear example of why it is important to express the glorious transcendence of God. While there is a disdain by many modern theologians to resort to negative ascriptions, Hillary's example in speaking of the divine nature provide the stark contrast between what scripture portrays of the divine nature, and what the heretics teach. In the classical view of God, again to use the term anachronistically, is the only approach that can properly express and uphold the transcendent distinction of God. In articulating the doctrine of the Trinity, Hillary leans toward a monarchian view whereby the Son draws his life from the Father, John 5.26, because, quote, the Father is his soul origin. Now, if you recall, we discussed that in looking at the Cappadocian Fathers, so it seems that Hillary kind of follows that same tradition. Now, and again, this is an eternal relation, okay, with no division or separation of the Son from the Father. Rather, the distinction is made by relations. Now, we cannot impose our thoughts of distinctions in human terms, which implies distinct centers of consciousness and also bodily divisions. And that is a Actually, kind of a recent thing where there is a um, what's it called? We're, we're seeing we're seeing heretical views of the Trinity coming out from those that we have for a long time in the Reformed camp seen as articulating a um, Orthodox view of the Trinity. And I'm not saying they're heretics, as if like, hey, they're they're condemned. Not by any means, but um, the social Trinitarian view. And again, saying that there's a distinct centers of consciousness is definitely a problem because ultimately then you have three distinct beings. And so uh, that's a, a common, or a common it's, a, it's a debate going on right now in various circles. I think it's very important. But again, when we say that the Son and the Father have the same will, to use Aquinas' terms, I think it's helpful that the Son has his will through the Father. His will through the Father. So the Father, the will of the Father, the Son has His will through the Father. Therefore, they retain that that oneness, and the Spirit likewise shares in that same will. Now, again, we're we're talking, you know, in a manner of, of speech that's very <laughs> abstract and, and challenging. But again, we want to retain our triune view of God, but retain the oneness of God. And saying by by God has no parts, He can't have 
distinct centers of consciousness, nor bodily divisions. So back to what I was saying here. Um, Rather, the distinction is made by relation, thus upholding Scripture's revelation, or the economy of the Trinity, with the Father as source, ensuring a logical monotheism. The relations of the Trinity, which are the persons, Hillary writes, are, quote, mutually each in the other, for as all is perfect in the unbegotten Father, so all is perfect in the only begotten Son, end quote. Water rig. Now, I had one of my viewers take a jab at me chewing ice. I will have to say, um, this ice is nugget ice. I have an opal ice maker. So it's like the best ice in the world. It's aerated. And so it's just so delectable to feel between your teeth. Because you don't have to push hard. It just kind of just bursts apart, almost like a grape. So um, I will always have nugget ice. And if you have to, you know... Tough it out by hearing me chew on ice. I'm sorry, I'm going to chew on ice. So, anyways, slide 11. Ooh, hold on. So, Hillary clarifies that the Son is the perfect offspring of the Father with no lessening of the Father or subtraction from his substance, but he who possesses all things begat an all possessing Son. A Son not emanating nor proceeding from the Father but compact of and inherent in the whole divinity of him who wherever he is present is present eternally. And then he, he goes to John 1 through 3, which provides the substance of his understanding of this mysterious generation of the Son. And we will kind of go through it here in detail. Again, his aim is apologetic. Scripture provides its own explanation from which we der derive his doctrines. Hillary sarcastically writes, Quote, from what book shall I borrow the terms needed to state so hard a problem? Shall I ransack the philosophy of Greece? No, no, I tell you. I have read, where is the wise? Where is the inquirer of this world? From 1 Corinthians one twenty. In this matter, then, the world's philosophers, the wise men of paganism, are dumb, for they have rejected the wisdom of God, end quote. And to further demonstrate that one does not need to venture into vain philosophy to arrive at these truths, he looks to the, quote, poor fisherman, ignorant, uneducated, he's talking about John, right, to whom Christ revealed such mysteries. Now, Hillary is not being disrespectful about John. Rather, he's demonstrating that such profound mysteries do not come from the elite, the philosophers of the age. Rather, they are revealed to us by the lowly, the common, the uneducated of the world. God has chosen that which is not wise, noble, or powerful from a human perspective to shame the wise, the noble, and the powerful. Again, we see that in 1 Corinthians 1. The fisherman, who is unlettered and unread, writes of the fixed moment of creation with time. In the beginning was the uncreated and timeless word. But what if this fisherman's teaching is a departure from the Incarnation, Hillary asks. Look to the very next sentence. He says, and the Word was with God. We see that the Word was, and the Word is with God in the beginning. He is the Creator at the beginning of creation. Our fisherman, writes Hillary, quote, has escaped. Perhaps he will succumb to the difficulties which await him, end quote. 
Now, the difficulties Hillary speaks of is in the assertion that the word is merely an utterance from God, the sound of his voice. But that is not what we see. Granted, there is a mode of understanding that we, that we do say the word is the expression of the eternal thinker's thoughts, which must also be eternal. However, the word is not just an expression of God's thoughts. Rather, he is a distinct mode or instantiation of the divine essence, but not in the Sibelian case sense or in the modalist sense. While human words come into existence when uttered, then fall out of existence at the completion of the word, John's words declare the word was in the beginning before words existed with God, not in God as words and thoughts reside in our minds. What are we to see of this word? The word, Hillier writes, is a reality, not a sound, a being, not a speech, God, not a non-entity. He continues his expression of key texts of John's gospel with meticulous resolve, but we must move forward. We're going to go into book three. So in book three, Hillary takes up John 10.38, which is the Father is in me and I am in the Father, expounding on the implications of this text in the divine Godhead. Because Hillary begins with the doctrine of simplicity, he can move into articulating what consists, speculatively speaking, within the Godhead. Later in it, oh, here we go. That's what he said. Oh, this is my slide. So what happened is that my printer did not print out my color indicators to my slides, so I'm kind of jumbling here, so I apologize for that. But so back to what he said here. So... Um, this is what he says, slide 14, about art, you know, articulating what consists within the, within the divine Godhead. He says, God is God, and it is God in whom God dwells. What does that sound like? Divine simplicity. He says also, he abides in one who is his own, born from himself. God is in God because God is from God. Again, these are, these are uh, passages that speak of divine simplicity. All right. So later in his treatise, Hillary provides a few concise statements on simplicity, stating, quote, oh, I already read that. Never mind. Next paragraph. So the properties that belong to the Father are endowed to the Son in their fullness. The Son has the fullness of the Godhead. And because God is spirit, then the Father and the Son indwell each other. The divine essence does not have mixture or separation, so the distinction between the Son and the Father cannot be in the essence, but in relation. Relation. Relations are the distinctions. Though it is a true substantial existence. Okay, that's important. We talked about a substantial existence. So for the relations to be true relations, they have to substantially exist. But they are not distinct separately as there's a division in the Godhead. You want to be very precise on what we say. So I'm going to jump ahead a bit in Hillary's treatise to flesh out the distinction he is talking about. So he grounds his argument for the divinity of Christ in the fact that he is described by the divine properties and actions of God. This is a very common thing that we see in the early church fathers. We saw that especially in the Cappadocians. He notes that we see the distinction consigned in the name, the word, who is indistinguishable from the Father in nature and thus inseparable, but is revealed to us as the divine utterance, which we saw in John 1, 1-3, and in the names 
power and wisdom of God. Where is that from? 1 Corinthians one twenty-five. In order to show that the word was not alien from the divine nature. Hillary's arguments refutes heretical appeals to Exodus 7.1 and Psalm 82.6 to deny that Christ is God of God. Starting with Exodus 7.1, where God says he has made Moses a God to Pharaoh, Hillary asks, does not this addition to Pharaoh account for the title? Did God impart to Moses the divine nature? Did he not rather make Moses a God in the sight of Pharaoh? And in Psalm 82.6, where God says, You are gods, Hillary notes this designation is a granting of favor, not a definition. Moses and the leadership of Israel, they represented God. They were not of the same nature as God. They were the powers of the heavens. A definition provides us, quote, knowledge of the object, whereas a description or title, as in 82.6, quote, has its origin only in the speaker's words, not in the thing itself, end quote. God provided the definition of his nature in Exodus 3.14, and we see it of Christ in John 1.1. In the eight, quote, I am passages in John's gospel and in the names power and wisdom in 1 Corinthians 1.25. <clears throat> Hold on a second. Nowhere else in Scripture do we see the divine properties of God ascribed to creatures. Rather, scriptures give, Scripture gives such designations to Christ to demonstrate that he is not a mere creature. And this is so important. When you look at how the New Testament speaks about Christ, to think that he is a mere creature, that he is not truly God, based upon how he's described the 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 phrases the terms the um what's the word I'm looking for the descriptions the characteristics given to him tell us nothing else than that he is God in the flesh and it's only challenging to us because now I think about that that God now in the person of Jesus is going to relate to us as a, as a person he's not going to relate to us as God in his essence as you will he's taken on flesh so the context there, and he's trying to do what? He's trying to point his audience back to the Father, to who he is trying to reveal to them. Um, so following this discussion, Hillary addresses the question of how or what is it to glorify one, excuse me, who has all glory. His manner of argumentation is lucid, starting from the essence and attributes of God as derived from Scripture, whereby... Hillary writes, God is subject to no change. His eternity admits not of defect or amendment, of gain or of loss. It is the character of him alone that what he is, he is from everlasting. While one might think we are at a standstill, the evangelist, John, also the fisherman, does not fail in providing the answer. He writes, quote, Since you gave him authority over all people, so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Hillary's explanation from this text reveals an important and often forgotten aspect in how we are to understand the relationship between God in his essence and God in revelation, or rather, the divine economy. We've been talking about that, the divine economy. There's the theologia and the economia, right? The theology, the economy, one is God in, in, whom, in himself, and one is God as revealed in creation. 
So, for example, God's glory. God cannot lose glory, nor can more glory be added to him. But God glorifies himself through the Son by being made flesh. I'm quoting now Hillary here. By being made flesh, being charged with restoring eternal life, he is glorified through the Son in the midst of us, ignorant, exiled, defiled, dwelling in hopeless death and lawless darkness. End quote. Hillary shows the full circle of this glory between the Father and the Son, whom are both full in glory in the divine essence, but revealing of that glory in time and space. Hillary writes, It is through this work of the Son (coughs) that the Father is glorified. So when the Son received all things from the Father, the Father glorified them. And conversely, when all things were made through the Son, He glorified the Father. The return of glory given lies herein, that all the glory which the Son has is the glory of the Father, since everything He has is the Father's gift. For the glory of Him who executes a charge redounds to the glory of Him who gave it, the glory of the begotten to the glory of the begetter. So this marks our end of part one of Hilary of Poitiers of France. So we are going to pick up next time in book four and work all the way through book eight. And then we will finish uh, our part two, examining Hillary's doctrine of the painlessness of Christ. Pretty unique to say the least, and it's definitely painful, pun intended, to read of this blunder in his theology. But we always want to try to interpret them in their context and try to understand, you know, why did he get to these conclusions and why was he convinced of it? So we'll go through the next time and I don't think he'll be convinced. But uh, again, we always want to be able to look at a theologian knowing that every theologian on the, on the white coat they've been given by Christ has a stain on it while they're here in this world. We can never say that they are without sin, without error, as we all are. But we want to appreciate, we want to glean what we can from this uh, leader of the Christian tradition that God raised up to do, to do things according to his providence. So that we are thankful to God, and may he be glorified and praised for it. So, oh, with that said, last slide. So this is a book you can get um, online. The Fathers of the Church series, very, very good. It's, it's probably the most current translation of the work of Hillary. He also has a commentary on Matthew. As well, I think it might be in this or might be a separate book. But if you have the the Nicene Church Fathers and Post-Nicene Church Fathers series, um, you can find that online for free. Uh, This translation, though, just I think it's probably a, a better translation. So with that said, thanks for joining us, and I will see you next time for part two. Take care.